Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What could go right? in a world where we are so focused on what could go wrong. Part of the goal of these conversations and what could go right, again, is not to ignore what could go wrong, but to put questions of risk in the context of the world that we're living in. We are speaking today with Ian Bremmer. Ian is the founder and president of the Eurasia Group, which is one of the premier risk consultancy organizations in the world consulting with companies, investors, governments, you name it, about what is going on in the world today, politically, geopolitically, economically, and what to look out for. Ian has a PhD from Stanford University. He is the author of multiple books, including The Zero Sum World, The J-Curve, The Fat Tail, and most recently, Superpower, about the various paths ahead for the United States. He's also a global professor at New York University, a foreign affairs columnist for Time magazine, and a series of other accolades and honors. So, let us plunge into this discussion with Ian Bremmer. I suppose I've been wondering for years... If things are so bad between the instability of Brexit or North Korea or scandals in Brazil or political instability in the United States or China's moves in the South China Sea or or, or all the stuff that you and Eurasia have been focusing on intensively and brilliantly, if things are so bad, why aren't they worse? Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there are a few reasons I would point to. Uh, one is that th- these are very asymmetric challenges. So um, if, if you look at the global recession in 2008, you know, you go to Davos in 2009 or the G20 in London back in April of that year, you ask any leader what they're concerned about, they'd look at you as if you had two heads. They'd say, what do you mean, what are we concerned about? We're worried about the recession. We need to respond to it. We need to make sure it's not a depression. We do everything possible. We've got to bail out the banks in the U.S. and the automotive companies, and China has to do stimulus because we've got to show some growth. And, you know, everybody knew that this was tenuous and this was a problem. Now, if you look at 2017, where the global economy is on the rebound, and, you know, it's not as robust as we'd like it to be, but it's, it's certainly growing. 
Um, and the IMF is, is upgrading as opposed to downgrading their expectations for most markets around the world right now. Commodity super cycle had been going down. Now looks like it's going back up again. Energy prices seem pretty stable. So a lot of that stuff seems okay. But this geopolitical recession, again, you're asking me about a very specific you know, sort of input, which is what do the geopolitics look like? And they look much more dangerous. But here's the interesting thing. It doesn't look that dangerous if you're the United States. I mean, we have the worst refugee crisis that the world has ever seen on record. Doesn't affect the United States. Doesn't affect China. Doesn't affect Japan. So the world's three largest economies not particularly bothered terrorism. We have some of the greatest danger of terrorism the world has ever seen. Probably the greatest danger in my view. And and yet Obama said ISIS was the JV team. Now people criticize him for that, but they forget the rest of the sentence, which is the JV team and their ability to attack the American homeland, which is, of course, true. Now, if you want to talk about ISIS's ability to hit Europe, they're the varsity team. If you want to talk about ISIS in the Middle East, the extended Middle East, they're playing for the NBA. And so, you know, when I look at all of these things, um, you know, in some ways, you could argue that unless the absolute worst circumstances occur, that the United States as a destination for investment is actually going to be more attractive by being not only a cleaner, dirty shirt, but actually being anti-fragile um, in a geopolitically more unstable environment. Uh, we've got Canada, Mexico, and two big bodies of water surrounding us, right? That's very attractive. Now, I mean, clearly there are some exceptions here, which is that a Trump administration with America first and with an executive order that didn't quite get done, but still an effort um, to reduce or make harder H-1 visas um, with an effort to restrict is uh, Muslim immigration. We've already seen a significant negative impact on tourism coming into the U.S. So that clearly matters. And you can certainly see how longer term, more structurally, um, some of the attraction of investing in the U.S. if you're China or as a destination for foreign capital, you could see how some of that could start to unwind. But at least in the near term, I, I actually think that life looks radically different geopolitically if you're sitting in the U.S. or if you're sitting in Beijing or Tokyo compared to if you're sitting in Berlin or if you're sitting in Riyadh. I mean, I just think it's a very, very different. There was a lot of speculation and a lot of prediction, not necessarily from you, but but from some in 2008, 2009, that the severity of the economic crisis would inevitably lead to political crisis, either overthrows of governments or some sort of, you know, people in the streets, that this was going to be the beginning of a series of cascading political crises. And from one perspective, you could say the the potential gradual and maybe accelerated unraveling of the EU if things go a certain way in elections this year between elections in France and elections in Germany, that it was a delayed reaction, but it's still happening anyway. But people were using more of a historical perspective of that kind of economic crisis had always in the past led to governments being overthrown, people on the street, you know, some sort of chaos. Are we just in a slow motion version of that? Or again, is there something that these past patterns just aren't playing out quite the way they were expected? I think that these countries are generally much more resilient. These are fairly wealthy countries with social safety nets that continue to work. And so there's much more political apathy than there is revolutionary intent. I mean, you can't compare, you know, France today or the U.S. today or even Greece today 
uh, to Weimar Germany and the hyperinflation um, and the feeling of destitution and also the feeling of historic grievance, uh, given you know sort of the loss from the war and the, and the reparations that were forced to be paid and all of this. I mean, you know, even Greece. Um, which is experiencing a significant refugee crisis, a, a major economic depression, but at the end of the day is fairly quiescent and the political institutions continue to function reasonably well. Um, it's kind of an emerging market. It's not a developed state, and you know we, we shouldn't kid ourselves about that in terms of tax collection and corruption and all the rest. You look at the United States, we just had the most important election of any of our lifetimes, and I mean, barely 50% of the population bothered to vote, right? No, no, okay, it was an 18-month election that we were all sick of, and people were very negative about both candidates. But still, you know, you would think that if people were really, really angry, and this was really, really important, that they would have gotten out and voted. And the fact is, most Americans were like, "Yeah, I don't, I don't like either of these guys, and so I'm not going to bother." Uh, that, that's a very different kind of environment than you know, sort of Tunisia kicking off the Arab Spring. Um, and that's because, you know, let's face it, if the economy in Tunisia tanks, you've got people that are actually starving. You have people that actually fear for physical security in the United States. As bad as the opioid addiction crisis is and as unfortunate as the lack of infrastructure investment has been across much of uh, non, you know, sort of metro urban America, we just don't have those problems. So why is it, do you think, I mean, I wonder about this all the time, why is there so much comparison to these moments? Well, uh, I think that uh, two things are conspiring here. Um, one um, is the polarization of the population and of the press. You used to watch three major networks, and they all basically gave the same news. Um, and now it's not only a question of blogs and cable, it's even differentiation and um, you know, sort of narrower demographics and political preferences within those, which tends to lead to uh, uh, you know, a gr groups of people that are not talking to each other, demonizing each other, hating each other, not crossing over. I think that's part of it. But also, um, you know, looking to the, you know, what you and I do for a living, um, I, I think about the fact that the guilds have broken down. So anyone now can be an, a public intellectual. Anyone can create news, real, fake, or indifferent. And, you know, that means to get attention, there is an inclination to say repeatedly that the sky is falling and there's upside for doing so. You get attention, you get invited on shows, you get to promote yourself, you can make some money. Uh, you can get some notoriety, some followers, some likes, and not doing that. Um, even and by the way, even if you if you do that, even if you're wrong, people forget about it a week or five weeks later. Not doing that can seem a lot less sexy. So I mean, those are fairly banal reasons for it. But I mean, you you can't draw that reasonable conclusion from the facts, right? It's just not there. It's funny. I was talking to somebody a, a few months ago about Brazil and. You've been all over this, obviously, and you know for those who don't follow this as much, Brazil's been in a political crisis that makes Watergate look fairly contained and fairly small. You know, between the corruption charges against a, a disproportionate percentage of everybody serving in parliament to the impeachment of a president, you know, while it looks from one perspective as if Brazilian society is imploding politically, uh, another perspective is the military doesn't step in the way it did throughout much of Brazil's history. The economy is functional. The rule of law continues. Do you view this as 
oh my God, this society is imploding? Or do you view this as there's enough internal resilience that you can have this massive crisis and things kind of move forward? I mean, where do you come down on that? I'm clearly on the latter front. I think this was the crisis that Brazil needed to have. Um, it's cleaning up shop. It's going to force Brazilian uh, congressmen to, and women to actually uh, go to their party leadership for money to run for election as opposed to deep pockets and corrupt institutions, which means that the sausage making of getting legislation done is going to start working again. I mean, a lot of pain to get there. But the fact is that Brazil has an independent judiciary, and thank God, uh, and in fact, a much more robust one than a country that's much more developed like Mexico. Now, here's a funny story bringing these two points together, is that you know, one of the people that I find myself that I found myself fighting with in public on Brazil um, in the in the heart of this crisis, right after the impeachment, was Glenn Greenwald. You know, the uh, the journalist that runs this uh, organization called the Intercept, the guy that supports Snowden. He's very well known. Who lives right? in Brazil? He lives in Brazil. He's a very articulate guy, but he's a bomb thrower. And, um, you know, he basically was arguing, uh, farcically, in my view, um, that, um, that removing Dilma Rousseff was not on the basis of a constitutional judicial process, but was actually a coup. I mean, li- literally no sane, um, sober analyst of Brazil would make that argument. And 20 years ago, someone like Greenwald would not have been taken seriously uh, by the commentariat. But today, in an environment where anyone with some sound bites, if they're relentless enough, can self-promote and can get the attraction uh, of the international media, um, you have someone like Greenwald who has become a serious and significant voice. And so, as a consequence, you had this you know, very shrill uh, sense of panic that, oh my God, you know, I mean, Brazil is, you know, about to become an authoritarian state. And again, that's, that's just objectively ludicrous. And I, I don't, I wasn't angry at him. I didn't, I didn't yell or scream. And, you know, eventually, I mean, it was easily enough dispensed with. But again, the fact that I even had to spend time doing something like that, or the fact that, you know, sort of you have people in a, in a major campaign in the U.S. or Europe or someplace else that has to, has to deal with fake news, the idea that you'll have people that believe that a, a pedophilic sexual trafficking site is occurring in a ping pong and pizza joint in, um, in, you know, in Washington, D.C., where I've taken Eurasia Group staff and, and never experienced the pedophilia, um, you know, that, that, that is, uh, that's new. Uh, that's not something that we've seen before. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And then, you know, sort of Alex Jones, who is, you know, an even bigger nut job um, on the right than Mother Jones has been on the left. Um, you know, basically uh, was was one of the major supporters of this, and his people, you know, millions of them read and believed it. And then, of course, you know, six months later, he apologized that I'm sorry I got it wrong. Well, who cares, right? I mean, you know, he he accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. And you know, if you're caught up in the crossfire, well, uh, you know, you're just uh, you're just an unfortunate casualty. There's also the feedback loop because Dilma as she was being impeached, picked up the same line, and as did Lula, and described what was going on as a covert coup, just like you have a feedback loop in every country now between certain media figures who then propagate an argument that's then picked up politically, and it then becomes almost this self-fulfilling reality, right? Um, in a way that I think is fairly atypical over the course of the 20th century, again, maybe because of that decline of, of guilds and separation. I, I do wonder, where do you come out on the... So Steven Pinker, professor at MIT, who has been talking over, over the past decade or more about the disconnect between kind of the statistical reality of quality of life, longevity, lack of global war, disease, violence as a source of premature death, you know, all the metrics that we have used to judge progress, advancement, quality of life. And that on all those scores, it's very hard to argue that things are not improving. And yet, you know, I would imagine most of the people you talk to, most of the companies are more concerned and more worried as are most people. How do you account for, I mean, again, is it just a media phenomenon or how do you account for this this disjuncture between what would look like a reality, i.e. things are getting more stable, safer, more affluent, and global perceptions of the opposite? First of all, uh, the expectations are clearly not being met um, among very large pieces of the developed world. And some of that is just perception because expectations have risen uh, and you can't keep up with them. And some of that is, is an objective destruction of quality of life. I mean, the, we know that the American dream just does not make it for half of the population these days. And some of that is pure globalization. It is jobs have left goods may be lower priced but if i don't have a job or opportunity then you know how why does this benefit me why should i support free trade why should i support nafta and the simple answer to that is you shouldn't you should actually protest or at least experience a protest vote um and you know i think trump and sanders did well because of that and you experienced that in europe and thomas piketty's book on capital a few years ago was a precursor to this and now you're seeing it with hillbilly elegy and other things uh around the us and europe so I mean, that's clearly part of it. But, you know, another part of it is the fact that the West dominates these narratives. I mean, Xi Jinping, in my view, is the strongest leader China's had in decades. 
um, and has a surprising, even a startling amount of support, patriotic support from his people, even though they've never voted for him democratically. And, you know, 10 years ago, when you and I were reading the regular um, op-ed columns by Thomas Friedman in the New York Times, he was, I mean, I could, I could point to at least a dozen op-eds that he wrote about different tropes on China's going to fall apart bigger discontent, lots of demonstrations growing every year. People are getting pissed off. The environmental crisis is getting worse. They're, they're being badly treated. Corruption is, off, is awful. And, and no one writes about that anymore because, you know, the fact is that people in China are pretty damn proud of what they've accomplished. And they've addressed a lot of their problems. They still have a lot of big problems. But, I mean, a lot of what you talked about, these opportunities, have come to China. And let's recognize that, you know, the share of emerging markets in the global economy was about 20% in 2000. It's 40% in 2017. In terms of global economic growth, it was 14% for the decade ending in 2000. It's 64% so far this decade. So, I mean, obviously, you know, if you want to talk about where the excitement is going to be and where people really think I'm doing awesome, okay, you've got Silicon Valley in Manhattan in the U.S., but you've got all of China, you got like all of India, you got you know a whole bunch of other places that have a hell of a lot more population. They just we just don't happen to know many of those people if you're you know sort of reading about this in New York because people don't travel there, they don't follow those people. For a bunch of years, when I was managing uh, a fund investing in China, two thousand five, six, seven, the primary question was always, when was the Chinese banking system burdened by all these? bad loans, when was it going to implode? And of course, in retrospect, the question should have been, when is the U.S. banking system going to implode? Because that's, th that's the one that fell apart, not the Chinese one. Just as a, And I know you think about this all the time when you try to help people look for the risks that are not obvious as opposed to the ones that they think they know, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing is that the Chinese system turns out that they have much more capacity to push off economic problems um, than other countries do. The Americans have much more capacity to put off political problems um, than other countries do. And, you know, you can elect uh, Obama or you can elect Trump, and it turns out that neither of them can do very much. Political risk in the U.S. domestically is surprisingly low. And you've got journalists in America running around like their hair is on fire, that every single thing Trump does is horrible. And, you know, certainly Trump is by far the least fit for purpose person that's been elected in the history of the U.S. as president. And yet, frankly, from a domestic perspective, it does not matter that much. He will be prevented from doing truly stupid, at least at home. Yeah, I mean, there was always this, you know, one of my questions was always, look, we elected Warren Harding as president in 1921, who was clearly not fit to hold that particular office, you know, who was much more adept at, uh, he used to play hide and seek in the, in the Oval Office and uh, was very good at secreting mistresses into various parts of the building. And nobody wondered about the impending implosion of the Republic. Now, it's true he didn't have a nuclear weapons button and the powers of the presidency were nowhere near what they are today in the United States. Nonetheless, you know, we muddled through Warren Harding. It's, it's not clear that we can't do the same with anybody today. But we have, a, we have much more focus on what's going on in Washington today. Absolutely. Um, I guess as a final series of questions... If the 20th century was sort of 
the century of the West and maybe the early part of the 20th century is the century of the rest. I mean, you've written about this in a zero-sum sense. Does that create an inherently more stable world? And so you get these pockets like large swaths of the Middle East that are increasingly more the exceptions than the rule, but because they're the exceptions, they get the attention? Uh, I think that um, the places that are really falling apart get a lot of attention, but we don't do very much about them because uh, they have very little influence, very little power. I mean, think about Syria. You have literally millions of refugees. The country has, you know, it functionally doesn't exist anymore. Certainly the government, the, the territorial borders, the economy, the educational system. And yet, you know, it, it, it and, and of course, in that case, those refugees did move to some countries we really care about. And even there, it didn't move many people to action because the effect on the major economies that have military capability of doing something about it was pretty limited. The U.S., the U.K., you know, sort of uh, the Chinese and, and, and the like. And um, I, I think that you look at climate change. Why has it taken us so long to deal with climate change? Because the countries most affected by extreme climate conditions, which is where we're seeing the near-term problems, are just countries that have very little investment and influence on the global stage. And I think you're going to see more of that happening within countries, too. There are parts of the United States that are functionally forgotten in terms of the global economy. Um, but the ability of that to spill over into broader concerns and conflict is pretty limited. So, I mean, structural inequalities within states as well as globally um, is also is, is not causing the level of instability that you would have expected um, in a in a in a very integrated globalized economy. It's because that integration globalization doesn't really include everybody. You obviously consult a lot with companies with individuals who are thinking about policy. Is there a risk, in your view, of companies kind of overestimating their risks? And I mean, I understand you are, in an important way, focusing and helping people focus on risks they ought to be paying attention to. I'm just wondering, is one of those risks that they will, in, in the f trees of here are all the areas that might be a problem, they could miss the bigger picture, which is or a bigger picture of greater stability or greater opportunity that is lost because of the perception of risk precludes taking advantage of it? No, no, I think it's extremely unlikely because, first of all, um, these, these people, most of the market participants are very short-term. If they're financial markets, it's because they're just you know sort of maximizing on a mark-to-market, day-to-day basis. If they're corporations, they're reporting results every quarter, and they've got shareholders that are demanding that of them. The, the average CEO in the U.S. lasts less than five years. Uh, there's path dependency. So, I mean, you know, the desire not to be caught out in terms of timing, like, yeah, North Korea could implode, but damn, I mean, I don't want to lose out on the next one year of upside. I don't know when it's going to hit. I just think that all of the structural incentives in capitalist economies are on the short term, not on the long term. And the most of the risks we're talking about here are either more structural and long term, or they are somewhat indeterminate, even if they're shorter term and hard to time out. So, I mean, I think that the places where you'll see people potentially over-egg the pudding on risk is in the run-up to a very obvious specific timeline variable. So, for example, French elections, we know they're coming up. Le Pen suddenly spikes in the polls. France is going to take a big hit, maybe even a sufficiently large hit that it helps to tank the French economy and lead to the kind of outcome that markets don't want. 
that kind of thing can happen. But for most of the risks we're talking about in the world right now that aren't as easily hooked on a binary in or out of the market on a certain date, it's actually uh, an underassessment uh, of those risks. So even if you assess them properly, you're, you're just not going to invest that way. And that, that's one of the reasons why I think that volatility in the global marketplace today is exceptionally low, despite the fact um, that geopolitical risk is exceptionally high, because it's not the kind of risk that people overstate. Well, thank you so much, Ian, for continued insights. And uh, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to keep revisiting all these questions in the months and years ahead. Happy to do that. Good to uh, good to be part of your kickoff. Fascinating conversation with Ian about not just the risks in the world, but how we understand what is going on. And I hope and trust that Ian's perspective of some of the longer term structural risks as being of a very different temperature than the immediate and often hysterical reaction to the problems in the world today should give some pause to that collective, sometimes aggressive belief that, that we're on the verge of some sort of precipice, the verge of some sort of collapse. And while there may be a lot of risks ahead in the world, we are in an inherently more stable system, potentially one that's less resilient, but we'll obviously not know that until something shatters it, but not with the immediate concerns or not with the fuel for those immediate concerns that the commentariat and the news culture and often our own just personal and emotional reactions would dictate.